You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so great to be with you. Uh, so let's just fess up right now who slipped on the ice at least once this morning on the way in. All right. Yeah, I see you guys, my people. Um, listen, in, invariably, there's going to be like that patch like over by the band building. I've slipped on that like every time, every week I've come in. Um, yeah, hi. It's good to be with you again. Um, we are continuing today through our se- series on the book of Daniel. Um, it's been really exciting to kind of go through this with you all. It was exciting to research this. It was a nice break from uh, my own research. Um, for those I haven't been obnoxious of, um, with about, uh, in addition to serving here, um, you know, my day job is a PhD student um, in the advertising department. Um, and I'm in the middle of writing my dissertation at the moment. And part of that process um, involves regular check-ins with an academic advisor, right? So every two weeks or so, um, I get an email from my advisor wondering, hey, you know, How's progress going? What, what have you written so far? What help do you need? Um, and I'll tell you what, I have learned to fear these emails. Um, I do not look forward to them. Um, I, I was actually telling people earlier today, I, like, I almost don't even check my email anymore uh, because I am so afraid of having to like, be like, well, I haven't really put a whole lot on paper. That's all I like, can do to not like unplug my computer, walk outside, just yeet it into oncoming traffic. Like I'm, I'm done with this whole thing. Right. I don't know. Like, and if she had just like, I don't know, given me a call and said, hey, how's things going? I could have said, well, you know, it's not OK. There's something softer about a voice. But the written word, right, the written word just sits out at you. Right. It's intimidating. You can't look away from it. I can close my eyes and I can know that I'm still being judged on the screen in front of me. Um, and like I'm being goofy sometimes, but like. The written work can communicate pretty serious things, right? Maybe you've gotten a text from someone, uh, you know, a significant other, we need to talk. That's, yeah, that's never good news. Or someone, right, you know, my uh, grandfather passed away a couple years ago. I received that news over text. Um, and there's something about the sudden appearance of it concretely on a screen that can make bad news uh, seem even worse. Well, this morning, we're going to get to talk about these, possibly the scariest DM that has ever been sent. Um, I should say it was very scary for the recipient. Um, but for us as Christ followers today, um, hopefully we'll find that it's a source of encouragement and a source of hope um, and a recontextualizing of what it is we're celebrating when we celebrate the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, As I said, we're in chapter five of Daniel this morning. We've been going through it the last couple of weeks. um, And we've kind of been in the middle of this arc, right, of a series of interactions between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian king. And Daniel five represents kind of the closing out of an arc that starts all the way back in chapter two, a narrative arc, where we started our look at the book together. Um, you know, most of these have been between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. One time it was just randomly some homies of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and all of them have basically boiled down to this thematic back and forth, right? Where each of these narratives has reminded us that God has promised to deliver his people from his enemies. And we set a plan in place to ensure that those who follow him, when they come under the hand of evil, say, you know, by the way of conquest 
or some, you know, hanging garden looking dweebs will be saved from that. I'm going to awkwardly stop real quick. Is the Zoom recording on? Um, I didn't turn it on. <laughs> All right, not even yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's you know double triples uh, starting at any. Anyways, so God's going to deliver His enemies from His people, and sometimes in the process of delivering us from His enemies, God uses humans. He uses us. Maybe that looks like using kings and rulers and wise men with a lot of influence and a lot of power, who can choose to use that influence for the good of God's kingdom. Maybe it looks like using prophets to declare the word of God to people who just aren't quite getting the message yet. We see that all over the place in the Old Testament. But in the book of Daniel, and arguably, you know, again, elsewhere in Scripture, what we come to understand in each of these episodes is that God's delivery of his people will happen, regardless of whether or not humans successfully play a role in that. Now, God gives us a chance to be part of the work of his kingdom and to follow in the ways he lays out for us in scripture. Uh, But this isn't to say that the agency we have has any ability to subvert the power of God to put his will forward, right? He's going to prevail regardless of our action or our inaction. And we've seen that several times throughout the book already uh, as we've gone through Daniel. God's patience tempered with his ultimate action to bring about his will and deliver his people. Um, I mentioned, so this is the closing of an arc, right? And so we can understand the weight of what goes on in this chapter. I think it pays to just really quick kind of go back um, and take a look at where we've been, right? So remember where we started? We started all the way back in chapter two with King Nebuchadnezzar, right? King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He says, oh, I got this crazy dream, right? This huge image was built with all sorts of materials and a stone, not cut by a man was was turned into a mountain and knocked everything down. Daniel, come in here. I got to figure out what this means. And he says, "Well, many kingdoms will be destroyed. You know, many kingdoms will fall. Many kingdoms will be destroyed. Um, power and and the the infrastructure that we know of will fall. Um, but one kingdom will rise above it all. Right? And King Nebuchadnezzar says." All right, that makes sense. And this this was God that gave this? Yeah, that's a pretty cool God you serve. So anyways, I got this big 90-foot statue of some other random God, and uh, if everyone could just worship that, that would be great, uh, on pain of an inside uh, tour into my big hot furnace. Um, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, we, we are not going to bow down to that. God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to do that. They go into the furnace. They come out of the furnace completely unscathed. King Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, this was a pretty cool guy you served who rescued you from this furnace. So I got another dream. Um, there was another like random image coming around. Like, What does this mean? Daniel says, well, um, well, you seem to have gotten a little big for your riches again. So um, God's going to humble you. And uh, you're going to spend a very a weirdly ox-related sabbatical as he does that. So he gets sent out to the town. Um, starts chewing grass like an ox for a while. He comes back and says, oh, I get it now, right? This is the Lord who has humbled me, who has who has done great things for the kingdom. I worship him all the time. Did that stick? Probably not. But at least for a little bit, that's where Kyle Klepper left us uh, last week. Right? So Nebuchadnezzar gets done oxing out. He comes back. He's like, praise be. The king of heaven is great. He humbled me. He can humble you too. Amen and amen. 
So now, after Daniel 4, we go through a little bit of a time skip. Okay, actually a pretty sizable time skip. So after chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to rule for a couple more decades. Uh, and then the throne of Babylon becomes a little bit of a revolving door. Um, so like over the next 10 years, there are a bunch of sons of Nebuchadnezzar and like grandsons and sons-in-laws that all sort of, a bunch of like near descendants that all sit on the throne for a little bit. But for whatever reason, they just don't have Nebuchadnezzar's staying power. Um, and history has sort of speculated generally what happens to cause each king to get deposed. But based on the relationship we saw between God and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we can guess, we can at least you know, take a guess why each rule was so short. In any event, so eventually a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar named Labashi, I hope I pronounced that correctly, ascends to the throne. He is very quickly often a, a son of Nebuchadnezzar, or more likely a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, named Nabonidus, ends up on the throne instead. Now, so the thing with Nabonidus is he wasn't, like, exactly super down uh, to be king. Um, in fact, like, there's some historical narrative to suggest that Labashi's murder was a conspiracy set forth by Belshazzar, um, Nabonidus's son, so that his line would rule over Babylon. Um, and maybe there's something to that, because what happens is Nabonidus says, well, you know, it's an honor just to be nominated. Thank you for that. Um, I actually had plans for my life, right? I got stuff to do tomorrow, dreams and stuff. Uh, so I'm going to head out, and my son Belshazzar is in charge until I come back. See you all in 30 years. So he pieces out, and Belshazzar responds to this newfound responsibility uh, the same way you might expect a young person to respond to it, right? Kahate! He's throwing all sorts of parties, right? So he, he gets his friends together, he gets his nobles together, people of status and influence in Babylon, brings them together for these lavish feasts, and that's just kind of all he does. Right, so there's this one feast he's having. This is where we pick up in Daniel 5. Belshazzar is holding one of these feasts. Um, the food is flowing, you know, the food is flowing, the drink is flowing. They're just talking about how great Babylon is, their kings and all their gods that they worship. Belshazzar is really feeling things, so he's like, let's kick things up a notch. Uh, so someone go get all that silverware from the temple, and we'll use that. A way to two sil- gods? I don't know who that is. Never heard of them. So we've had the inciting incident now. So he didn't put any 90-foot statues like Nebuchadnezzar did to ask people to worship it. He took dining vessels directly out of the house of the Lord and used them for his feast. And to be clear, this was an act of blasphemy, a direct defiance of the Lord. Whatever attempt Nebuchadnezzar had made to tune in to what God had in store for Babylon, they had long since fallen off the radar for Belshazzar. And so God acts. Daniel 5 tells us this. We're going to start, by the way, if you have your Bible, um, the words will be up on the screen. Uh, We're in Daniel 5. Um, And we're going to start it here in verse 4. This is where we pick up uh, with Belshazzar's festivities here. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. At this point in the story, we think we know the cycle. right? The king is going to try to position himself high above everything else, and God's going to humble him. 
And God certainly wastes no time in humbling him. Like an entire human hand comes down and inscribes a whole message on the wall. And Belshazzar is pretty forcefully taken out of peg by this, right? Number one, because he can't read this message. As we're going to find out, he's got to call Daniel in again. Uh, but number two, uh, that bit where they go out of the way to mention uh, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Uh, so more than one commentator has suggested that that definitely means he <coughs> uh, left something in the old royal trousers. Because uh, that's how scared he was. Dude was freaking out. I mean, I would be too. If a hand came down and started writing on the acoustic pillars over there, I'd be like, excuse me. So God makes himself known. Not by a dream, not by spoken words, this time by writing on the wall of the very palace he's sitting in. So this is where Belshazzar kind of gets the message and reorients his life, at least for a little bit, right? No, not this time. Here's the fatal flaw. His reaction is humility to this message. He's standing there scared, but his thoughts are, I have egg on my face. I have you know what in my pants. All of these important noble people are here. I need to regain control of the situation. So in comes the queen. Right? And the queen has herself a great idea. She says, oh, king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Check this out. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom. Like the, By the way, your father refers to Nebuchadnezzar, even though he wasn't Belshazzar's biological father. It means something closer to ancestor, predecessor, um, just as that quick contextual note. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. You see what's happening here? The queen is enabling this, this, this regaining of power, like the regaining of composure, right? First of all, he's connecting Belshazzar to Nebuchadnezzar, right? This God who so wisely, he's led to believe, sought the will of, of you know, the gods of Babylon and, and was filled with enlightenment. And, 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 and you know, the, the power is in your blood, Belshazzar. Um, but there's also, it's also worth noting that, like, they kind of think they've got this down to the science, right? They kind of think they've got a level of control over the situation. Um, if you look back to the other narratives, like Nebuchadnezzar almost brings on a, an amount of panic. Like, what does this mean? Get everyone else we possibly can in here. I need to solve this out. And if they can't, I'm going to kill your whole families, right? But the queen's like, no, relax, man. Like, Daniel's here. We know how this works now. Um, this is still in our court. The ball is still on our court here. There's no panic. There's no crying out. And there's certainly no seeking out to God. Uh, the power is still with Belshazzar, and at best, Daniel on top of that. We can see this isn't a teachable moment for Belshazzar, like it was Nebuchadnezzar. And that's going to be the first critical difference that leads to a much weightier ending to this narrative than the one we've seen before. When faced with the idea that there is a power higher than his, Belshazzar doubles down. Belshazzar's actions aren't born of a neglectful pride, right? He's bound and determined to stay on top and acknowledge himself as the greatest might of civilization, as Babylon was frequently seen to be at this time. And that could not be further from the humility to which he was called and to which we all are called. 
And that's an important nuance to note, right? Because it makes the story a little bit more relatable. Like none of us are kings or even vice kings of Babylon. So it's easy to sort of tune this narrative out and be like, not applicable, can I go home, right? But even if it's not political power, we're trying to retain. Like how often are we unwilling to like admit that we're wrong or admit that we missed something? Right, it's the same basic principle. I was at Schnucks the other day. I was doing grocery shopping. And so I went to the sort of self-checkout line. Uh, and a part of the rewards program, you get the little app where you can, you know, scan the barcode um, and sort of redeem your points towards your grocery shopping, whatever. So I'm at the self-checkout, right? And I try to redeem my points. I'm scanning the thing um, over and over again. It's not working. It's not registering. The... Empl you know, one of the employees comes over and says, can I help you with something? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm trying to redeem my points uh, using the check-in scanner here. And he points to a sign that's like posted right underneath the screen that says gift cards and schnooks rewards are not redeemable at self-check-in counters. Um, so clearly I missed that sitting right in front of me. What did I say? Oh, I'm sorry. I missed it. No, what I said was, Oh, that's what that means? Oh, thank you for clarifying that for me. So I saw that, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure of the interpretation, but you know, th thank you for explaining it. Because that was easier to just like, oh, I misinterpreted something, than to admit that I was just like, I had missed the sign because I was thinking about the new episode of Boba Fett or whatever. Right? <laughs> we do that constantly without even thinking about it, even for something innocent like that. So how much more detrimental is it that Belshazzar can't look to see that something's not right here. Belshazzar, after, even after being shown his Noshnuk's reward sign, refuses to acknowledge that it's even there. For him, he's still in control. He still has the power. The power is still inherent to him. We see that in the way he talks to Daniel. Daniel does eventually come in about halfway through the passage, I promise. This isn't false advertising. We get reintroduced to our good buddy. Belshazzar greets him, welcomes him into the room. Take a look at what he says, starting in verse 16. So the king answers and says to Daniel, You are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So this guy's still going, right? Did you see that? Like the manipulation continues. First of all, he's calling out right away that Daniel's an outsider, right? We know that God has empowered Daniel to interpret these visions, interpret these dreams, guide the chosen rulers of Babylon. And Belshazzar's idea of power is just so far gone from that. It's like, you're not even in my circle right now, dude. But hey, check this out. I've heard that you got a little something special. And if you can do this for me, if you, if you kind of do me this favor, I'll bring you off a little piece. How's that sound? So now Kyle mentioned to us last week that Daniel served this particular line of kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar um, following onward, for a very long time. 
and that's real. By the time this particular exchange happens in Daniel 5, uh, he was a pretty old man. So he's seen kings lose their way. He's seen kings make, like, unabashed runs for power. Um, kings have been killed. Kings have been deposed. Kings have been manipulated. Everyone's just trying to stay on top and keep Babylon where it is in the world scene and keep themselves where they are in the wider, in the wider scene of Babylon. And every single one of them turned away from God. They might have come back to God at one point or another, or they might have come back to some notion of God that was off, but at least on the right path. But invariably, they get lost in their own power, and they mistake it for that which the one God, which the one God bestowed upon them. And by this point for him, it's just so, so very grating. So Daniel, at this point, after decades of this now, has to clap back. Check out what he says in verse 17. This is like my favorite thing in the whole passage. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. That's ice cold, man. Like, oh. Wish I could talk to other people like that. Yo, save it. I'm done. Just no more. He knows how this is going to turn out. Right, Belshazzar? It's and it's cathartic to watch Daniel respond this way and maybe even a little bit, like, inspiring. Because we know how this is going to turn out, too, right? Belshazzar is not going to see the writing on the wall. He's not going to know what it means. And God is going to do something to humble him. People going to get destroyed. But in all seriousness, this is probably the crux of the entire passage right here, this one verse, Daniel's response, because it sets up the two major tensions in this exchange that add an extra weight to this narrative. Um, It casts like a dark, ominous cloud on it um, and really begins to seal Belshazzar's fate and the fate of his lineage in Babylon. So first, as I kind of alluded to, it shows just how done Daniel is with the Chaldeans. Years after year after year of this, king after king, kings turning away from God, misusing power, aiming for the wrong things. And what's a little scary about that is what we see with the writing on the wall is that God's done too. His patience has run out. He's tried time and time again to bring this line back to a place of humility, to a place of ruling with righteousness, And he has seen the latest king, not even a king, a vice king, a regent, blasphemy him by using the silverware in the dining room table, in in the temple, excuse me, by not taking the very clear hint that's going on here. But then more encouragingly, we also see that this is is a response of humility, right? This is how Belshazzar should have come at this issue immediately juxtaposed. Belshazzar tries to offer power, tries to offer wealth, tries to offer status, none of which is actually his, both in the sense of it actually belongs to Nabonidus still at this point, and God gave it to both of them. It's not his to distribute. And Daniel recognizes that it's also not his to take. So after rebuffing Belshazzar here in no uncertain terms, 
Daniel starts to sort of walk through the writing and, and respond to the king's request at this point, respond to Belshazzar's request. He's like, yeah, I'll interpret the writing. But uh, first, I'm going to just like kind of remind you of how the last 20 years have gone. And I'm going to give you a chance to see if you can try to figure this out on your own. Uh, and so he, he basically goes through and he gives the recap that I gave you a little bit earlier. talks about um, God and Nebuchadnezzar's kind of back and forth. Um, Nebuchadnezzar trying to assume power, God humbling him. Then he starts to explain why what's going on now is different than then. So Daniel says this, starting in verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So Daniel catches Belshazzar on his gambit here. Belshazzar, you're trying to compare yourself to your old gramps, but he at least left room for the notion that his power wasn't absolute, that it wasn't the highest thing in civilization, and that it ultimately wasn't his to wield. He left room for the notion that as a man he is fallible and that one day it was all going to come to an end because God is the one who is sovereign in Babylon. He is the one who has given you the power to rule and you blaspheme him with your feasts and you respond to his discipline by just puffing out your chest and exerting your own will. And so I'll tell you what's on the wall, my friend. This is God's sentence for your life. This is God reminding you in unmissable, concrete, can't close your eyes and look past it fashion, what's to come for you. So this presence from the hand of God, or this hand from the presence of God even wrote three words in Aramaic. You were one of them twice. Mini, mini, tekel, Paris. And Daniel explains each of them in turn. So mini translates roughly, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Babylon's conquest, your family's conquest to dominate all things, it's over. Because God is dominant. And he's about to start using someone else to rule this land instead. Because he writes Tegel. Now this one probably has the most variation um, in its translation, but it translates most of the time roughly to God has balanced you on the scales and found you deficient. He's found you lacking. So God held the Babylonian kings and even Belshazzar as this sort of ad hoc ruler to a standard of righteousness, right? If you're given power, there is a call in your life. This is true for us today. If you're given power, there is a call in your life to use it for the glory of God. And the kings of Babylon ignored this call. Belshazzar ignored this call. It's kind of like a performance review, right? And God, after years of constructive feedback, right, gave him a chance, has been forced to say, you're not cutting it, man. Here's the rubric. Here's where you are. Time to go. And finally, the implications of all of this, Paris, because of these things, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Someone else has now been given the power that was previously given to you. And with that, the story of the Neo-Babylonian kings has ended. The story of Daniel hasn't. 
course, we got a couple more chapters. Um, we are going to look at it in the next couple weeks. But the Chaldean lines that end with the father of Nebuchadnezzar start with the father of Nebuchadnezzar and end with Nabonidus and Belshazzar are over. Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom the very next day. So it's important to stop and ask ourselves a couple questions as we consider this narrative. Because um, as I've alluded to earlier, you know, pretty much everyone in this room can be like, um, excuse me, I'm not an interpreter of dreams or a Babylonian king. Can I go home? <laughs> and we're definitely not. Um, so as with most Old Testament passages, it's, we, we do need to stop and ask ourselves, what do Christ followers in the modern day outside the Babylonian context do with Daniel 5? Because obviously God doesn't, you know, write directly on the walls. He gives us his word in scripture, of course, but we're not, we're not getting any, like, disembodied hand DMs from him anymore. We are getting these concrete signs of the, like, ends of chapters in our lives for such clear direction. Um, and so the temptation direct, to directly moralize from this story is, I hope, like, lesser for us. When we ask this question, though, we, we, we are drawn attention to the fact that there are more than just two characters in this story. Like Belshazzar and Daniel do most of the talking. Uh, but there's one that's only, that only gets a passing mention. Um, but it's the one that's worth noting more than the two speaking characters combined. Any guesses? The head, right? Doesn't say a word, but it's there. And, and, and it's the physical presence of God in that moment. Like how many times do we see that in scripture? Not too often, right? It's, it's, it's you know, cloud of fire, sure. Burning bush, sure. But like a physical human form. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> Has God ever done that? Like in the, in the, his, in the like history of, of humans since then? Oh yeah, that's right. He did. Yeah, it's, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. Yeah, the Sunday school answer, right? The physical presence of God has joined the battle, right? And, and when, I, when I look at the story, there are two major things that this narrative elucidates for us about our relationship with Jesus and our understanding of Jesus, right? Because there isn't like a direct parallel to Jesus. Daniel isn't like, a Jesus analogy, there isn't a direct Christ figure, but there are several similarities about how Jesus dealt with, you know, how Jesus dealt with conflict, how Jesus sort of positioned himself in relationship with God, right? We see all the time, you know, he, he emptied himself out. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, Paul's entire description in Philippians 2 about Jesus' idea of humility. It gets fleshed out a little bit through this narrative. Right, so, we, so we're understanding two major things about Jesus and our relationship with him. The first one is a simple one, but it's potentially a scary one. Right, so when God and his word take physical form, watch out. Uh, because in short, stuff is about to get rid. And we see it happen so infrequently in scripture and in real life because it should have weight. Right, value is a function of scarcity. 
we're meant to assign a weight and a significance to it. There's something scary about being about like being assessed at any point, right? But God's not going to wait for us to measure up to his level of righteousness, right? He will have patience with us. He will forgive us. He will show us grace. But he does not want us to conflate that with condoning sin or condoning unrighteousness. There's a standard and we will all eventually be judged according to that standard. Tegel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And the and weigh, weighing on the scales, that takes a long time, right? It took decades of time. God taught, God rebuked, God poked, prodded, showed up in dreams, showed up in visions, showed up as wanting to be an ox. It's a powerful reminder that God is a measured God, right? He's not this God of wanton violence who will take out vindictive anger on, on his people, right? He gives us a chance. He shows us patience. He seeks to build us up, but he gives us the choice to fall away from him too. And at that point, he has to separate. Out of his love for us, God forgives us sins, but there's still the standard of righteousness. And more importantly, there's a standard of humility. And our chance to live up to it isn't unlimited. And Paul, in the book of Acts, makes this connection to Jesus very explicit. He explains that just because God forgives us doesn't mean that, we, that the call on our life is just a formality. It's a requirement. Let's real quickly take a look at Acts chapter 17 with me up there. Paul reminds us that the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has and of his he has given assurance to all that by, raise, by raising him from the dead. As found in Christ, the physical presence of God tells us that God will take action. He has before when he wrote on the wall. He has before when he sent his son to die for us. And by the way, he will again someday. When Jesus returns in physical form, he's going to bring an end to the sinfulness of the world. He's going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth and bring his, the people who follow him up to be with him for eternity. But remember the theme of our narratives here? Right? God delivers his people from his enemies. As scary and as imposing as that, sort of first implication of Christ might be. There's a more powerful second one that comes through as well. But it reminds us that God with a physical presence is mighty to defeat anyone and anything who stands against him and his people. And the bigger they are, by the way, the harder they will fall. It's God who bestows all power, right? And Jesus exemplifies this and models this for us all the time, right? He washed his disciples' feet. Um, he ate lunch with people who it was not culturally expedient to eat lunch with. Um, he walks up to Pilate, right? Pontius Pilate, the man who was about to sentence him to death. And when met with the question, 
why don't you speak out? I have the power to save your life and I have the power to take it. Jesus replies with, you only have power because God has given you power. Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't count the power of God a thing to be wielded. He was granted it. But he wielded it for the good of the kingdom and not for his own ends. And because he did that, people fell. Sin fell. The devil fell. Evil fell. And our chances of spending eternity with God survived. Another illustration of this. I intentionally left the best part of this passage for last. Um, so we left off Daniel tells Belshazzar the writing on the wall means his rule is at an end, right? In verse 29, um, we hear Belshazzar's kind of take on all this, right? He promised Daniel, tell me what this means, and I'm going to hook you up, man. I'm going to give you the threads. I'm going to give you the money. You get to be ruler over this kingdom alongside me and my dad. It's going to be great. So sure enough, verse 29 Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. This man is still doubling down. He's still like, oh, yes, it's, it's exactly as I proposed. Yes, very good. Thank you for the interpretation. Here is some power that I am sharing with you. He's still not getting it. And so the very next verse, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Yep, yep, that's it. That's it. It's verse 30 right there. No fanfare, no preamble, no build-up. God was not kidding. And it's like it's like as if it was demonstrate just how off Belshazzar's idea of power was. A day later, Belshazzar is gone. A decades-long line of kings is over, and a cultural center of a civilization falls to a different ruling power entirely. It's huge. And it's terrifying too, right? A God that can tear down a dynasty in a single verse. But to me, that just means like, what can he tear down like in our lives? Like I know when I, whenever I think about those, those major mountains in my life that, that seem so huge to come down, those are always the ones I never trust God to take down. Right? Those are the ones I'm always assuming, no, like I got to get my house in order and then God and I can talk, but like try not to waste his time right now. No, it's like those are the ones he is most powerful to take down first. Because those are the biggest obstacle between him and us and him and our acknowledgement of his sovereignty and his power and his glory. So as we close up this morning, as we close the book on this line of kings and get ready to see what else God has for Daniel, because there's some spicy stuff coming up. I want to invite us to look through the ways in which we build ourselves up, big and small. Think about the ways God has tried to humble us. But then finally, think about the ways that God, through presenting himself through the physical form of Christ, is mighty to take those things down even faster than the small things. 
it's a scary message to be sure, right? Because even as followers of Christ, we're still on the standard, right? We're still on the rubric. We're still being weighed on the scales. And that can be a huge responsibility. That can feel like a huge responsibility sometimes. But by ensuring that we recognize our own smallness, right? By ensuring that we live as well as we can, um, acknowledging who God is in our lives and giving him the top place and recognizing that we can't do anything without him. We won't be found deficient. And our status as co-heirs with Christ will be realized um, in the end times. Um, I hope that's as much an encouragement to you as it is to me, um, especially, again, writing a dissertation, <laughs> doing whatever else you might be doing. Um, that's where we'll leave it. I'm going to invite the band up, and uh, let's pray together.